I'm so excited to be here today with Matt Siegel. Um, before we get started, let me just do a little introduction. Matthew Siegel is a PhD and associate professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. <clears throat> He's a transdisciplinary researcher who teaches courses applying process relational philosophy across various disciplines, including religious studies, philosophy of nature, philosophy of mind, and social and political theory. And uh, <clears throat> he's published um, at least two books, Physics of the World Soul, Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology, which was published in 2021. And in 2023, he published Crossing the Threshold, Etheric Imagination in the Post-Kantian Process Philosophy of Schelling and Whitehead. <clears throat> right now he's teaching a really interesting course called Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology, and I hope we can hear more about that. And I want to apologize for my voice. <laughs> I had something the last few days that sort of stole my voice, and um, we'll just see how things go. But Matt, I reached out to you this time because you had said something in your Twitter feed about music and memory. And that really rang a bell for me because I've been thinking about memory and habit and pattern. And <clears throat> before we get started, I would kind of like to make a, a frame for us with a couple of videos. I wonder if I could show just a couple of one or two minute clips that would kind of uh, put a frame around this. Mm -hmm. So I'm um, going to share a screen here and see what I can do. Um, optimize for video clip. We'll see how this goes. Um, let's see. The first one, can you see the video on here now? I do see the physics as information processing clip. Yes. Yep. Okay. This is uh, <clears throat> from a series of lectures that Chris Fields has been doing. Chris Fields is a very interesting guy. He's had a lot of work with Michael Levin. And although Chris Fields is a physicist and Michael Levin is a biologist, they're talking about how these things intersect. And there's this little clip in here about memory and information that I thought was super interesting. If you have a structure like this, you face a metabolic trade-off. For a fixed amount of, of energy that you can extract from the environment, you can allocate it either into learning more about the environment or remembering more about what you learned before. And so any system has to make this decision about how they're going to use energy. Are they going to devote it to learning more or remembering more? And your laptop makes that decision. Now, memory is cheap for your laptop. Uh, your brain makes that decision. Memory is much more expensive for your brain. And all cells have to make that decision. And the universal solution to this uh, trade-off is coarse-graining memory i.e. remembering things in less detail than you saw them in the beginning. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> keep that in mind. And now we're going to watch this little clip of Christopher Mastro Pietro and Jonathan Pajot talking about the magic of the creative process. 
that you have to have. It's like, I think, I think of the way that really good um, uh, performers, like really good actors or musicians kind of describe their process, which is that they state they are as studious as they can possibly be for as long as they can possibly be. And when then when the time comes to perform, they do their very best to throw everything out. Yeah. Right? They forget they 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 find it in them to forget everything it is that they know in order for something a deeper form of recollection to take place, right? It's a kind of a paradox, right? You need to have a kind of forgetfulness in order for the anamnesis to actually happen. And that's what I'm kind of hearing from you. It's like you, you, you've done all of this work, but then in some sense you have to take it. I, I'm thinking of your, I'm thinking of your left and right hands again, right? That, that, that the, that the logos, that the, that the, the logos of judgment that takes has to yield itself to the eros of generosity that gives and that they're so <clears throat> do you see anything connection do you see any connections there yeah absolutely i mean if we're living in patterns we've acquired in the past and habits it's it's very difficult to actually learn something new and you know this um flow state phenomenon that artists, athletes, um, anyone who's an expert at something, uh, can, can tap into is, um, it's interesting to connect it to what Chris Fields was saying about sort of the thermodynamics of consciousness when we're, we're using this model that physicists develop to understand the flow of heat, um, that we can sort of by analogy. And I think it is an analogy. It's not, you know, wouldn't want to equate the flow of heat to this more um, this this phenomenon in 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 consciousness, but there is an analogy there that this flow of uh, feeling and the sort of um, rhythms that we can tap into they sort of we transcend our ourselves and our self concepts. Perhaps we move beyond the patterns that we uh, remember in the past, though of course we're still drawing on them. But we we step into this sort of um, unbroken flow of either the other, if we're a musician, the other performers that we're with, if we're an artist, a painter, maybe we're in flow with the the uh, um, the, the the color and the 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 paint, the medium itself, and um, we sort of become um, the the separation between ourselves and what who we think of our ourselves as and the medium in which we are working breaks down and we just become one flow. And, and that's such an enjoyable experience, not only for the, the artist, uh, but also for the audience, if there is one, um, because it, it, we become, yeah, channels or portals for this potentially cosmic creativity, uh, to flow through us. And it's, uh, you know, it's in some sense what life is all about. You know, we all, we're always seeking these experiences. Um, One of the things that I found super interesting was that when Chris Fields is talking about it, he says, yes, computers have to do this. They have to balance learning and memory and human brains have to do this. They have to balance learning and memory, but it goes all the way down to the cell level. The cells also have this, uh, have to have this balance between learning and memory. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, which implies that that the um, 
well, he uses the word coarse graining. So the, um, the, the memory has to be put aside or shrunken or coarse grained in order to leave more room for the learning. And um, that has to have something to do with the way that organisms develop, I think. And to me, it's also connected to this whole idea of um, context and anomaly, which is something that's been super important in my thinking that one of the things that Levin has been talking about lately is that the, and this is not just his work, it's the work of Anna de Soto and a number of other people, that the cell develops according to its context. So um, a cell, depending on the medium that's in, can either become a muscle cell or a neuron. And it depends on, on the viscosity and the, the structure of the medium that it's growing in. So in other words, the environment is training the cell or constraining the cell in some way to teach it how to develop or how to become. And, uh, yeah. and I, I think this is also true when we confront an anomaly. I mean, I'm thinking humanly right now, but when we confront an anomaly, we have to learn new things in order to adapt to this anomaly, in order to overcome it or in order to get around it, which often means that we have to let go of previous assumptions. And I think this must be also true of, let's say that you have a, a single cell bumping up against uh, an edge of something. It can't get through, so it has to do something. <laughs> and that has to have some sort of perception there. And to think about cells having this level of perception is pretty fascinating to me. And I know that you study this whole thing about the philosophy of biology. And I wondered what you think about driving cognition all the way down to the cell level that way. Yeah, no, I think it's an essential uh, paradigmatic shift to think of cognition as something coextensive with life. And, you know, Mike Levin is is really experimentally verifying that this is the case, but theoretically speaking, uh, it's probably the Chilean biologists, Humberto Maturana and, and Francesco Varela, who first really put this idea on the map, this so-called mind-life continuity thesis, that when you have life, you have mind. And the single cell would be the paradigm case of what they called an autopoetic uh, system, um, where you have a system that has uh, a membrane that differentiates it from an environment and that the parts internal to this system produce one another for the sake of the whole, right? And so it's a self-organizing, but also self-producing system. And they did single out individual cells as the paradigm example of this. And I think what what Levin's work and, and the work of, of other biologists, um, one that I've collaborated a bit with, Bruce Damer, an astrobiologist working on the origin of life, they're really emphasizing the communal nature of uh, of cellular life and that you don't really get 
I mean, there are protists and and other amoebas and stuff that that are sort of individuals, but in terms of how life originated and how obviously in the case of multicellular organisms, animals and plants, um, it's a collaborative effort. And the intelligence realized by these cells is very much a, a collaborative affair, a collaborative affair. And, you know, it's not all that different from an individual human being. If you think about human life in a developmental context, as we're born into the world as helpless infants, we really do need uh, the mother and and parents and other people to tell us who we are. You know, we don't come in with this sense of identity and and uh, ego centric um, awareness of how we are separate from the world. We learn that, and we learn that from um, the love or or not in some cases that we receive from our caretakers, right? And in the same way, when a cell is trying to figure out you know, it's asking, who am I? What, what am I supposed to be doing? It, it needs its environment to cue it, right? And so the question, who am I and where am I, um, are kind of uh, reciprocally bound up with each other. And, and so life is, in a way, a property of environments, right? Where environments become capable of learning. And I, I think this paradigm that's dying is this idea that life is somehow an anomaly in the universe that like there's really just physics and chemistry and then some kind of miracle happens and you get you get these biological organisms appearing and it's like well no it's as as mike levin will often point out like we all start as physics and chemistry and develop from the zygote into these complex animals that seem really separate from from their environments but really we're just something the environment is doing and that helps us put life back in its cosmic context, back in its um, environmental context so that we can recognize that we are inseparable from what's going on around us and that whatever our sense of identity is, it's established in concert with our environment and with our in the context of our relationships to others. Well, <clears throat> in this whole idea of of context, um, I wanted to show you, let me, I'm gonna share screen again here. Um, and I hope I've got the right screen. I think you can see. Uh, I think I see my bio here. Yeah, but now can you, can you see? Uh, yeah, that's not it. Sorry. That's all right. I thought I had the right one up here. Oh, your bio. That's right. And then I move on down to this. So there's this guy named Stephen Talbot who has mm. written a lot of books. This one is from Evolution and the Purposes of Life. I made a little note for myself that this story that he tells is a perfect example of how we make art. So he's talking about these birds called chaffinches. And he said, this bland statement that we use, it's all instinctive, rides roughshod over the intelligent sensitivity expressed at every moment of their lives. Now, earlier he's talked about how a chaffinch, a male chaffinch has to go into an area where he is going to uh, find a mate and he's going to build a nest and he's going to start a family. 
And oftentimes the environment he goes into doesn't even have, maybe at the time he starts, won't even have enough resource for him. But over time, as he sings and sings and sings, he's, he's driving out all of the um, potential competitors from his area. And he's also wooing all potential mates. Then he gets a mate, they, they build a nest requiring finding all sorts of materials and building in a very particular way to provide this nest. And the nest has to be big enough for five to six adult, almost adult chaffinches because they don't jump out of the nest to fly until they're quite um, far along. Then they have to find enough food for these birds and um, care for them in every way until they're ready to leave the nest. And it requires many, many choices and decisions. But then he says, <clears throat> they also have this intelligent sensitivity expressed at every moment of their lives. Because if the nest is damaged by a storm, repairs will be made using whatever materials are at hand. It may not be the original materials. If a drought removes some of the feeding possibilities, an entirely different pattern of foraging may take hold and so on with virtually every detail of behavior. And then he makes this statement I think is so important. The end is more constant than the means and it requires an active intelligence capable of improvising responses within an infinite variety of unforeseeable circumstances in order for the end to be achieved. <laughs> so this idea that there's an infinite variety of unforeseeable circumstances. <laughs> and that's true for all of us in our life. I think that's also true for any cell that's developing from a single cell into a multicellular organism. Mm -hmm. It's certainly true for these birds. And the only way you can manage an infinite variety of unforeseeable circumstances, what that really means is there's an infinite need for learning because there's an infinite variety of unforeseeable circumstances that you're going to face. And then you have to manage the memory on the other end, um, which is why Field says that you, we, we turn all the memory into coarse graining so that it doesn't take up as much storage capacity. But I've also spent quite a bit of time talking to a physicist named Glenn who says that in his mind, even entropy is a kind of forgetfulness, that there's a, there's a cost to forgetting. Um, especially if you look at uh, computer memory, that was, I think it's Landauer's principle, that the way that they realized that, um, that, Maxwell's demon does not um, diminish the second law of thermodynamics is that when the memory is dumped, there's a cost to that. And so that, so that entropy does still increase because Maxwell's demon eventually has to dump the memory in order to begin to get more information. So there's something about this balance between information and memory or between learning and memory mm -hmm. that um, is really important in the universe. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you probably have this this same line in mind that might, that Mike Levin quotes frequently from William James, where James defines intelligence as the ability to accomplish the same goal by different means, and so this flexibility and the adaptability to learn, uh, and but with keeping the aim in mind, but to learn how to accomplish that aim in a variety of different circumstances, and it's you know we have this idea of of knowledge derived from a kind of, um, you know, Cartesian, uh, paradigm where, um, as if we already know what the world is capable of throwing at us and, uh, we don't need to, um, be sensitive to the uniqueness of each moment and in each environment. I think we're shifting as a result of research in biology like this to a paradigm where knowledge is, is, reimagined as an ongoing process of learning and this this has you know obvious applications in in biology and the biology of cognition but i think in in philosophy when we think about epistemology or the study of how we know things since descartes and kant and this whole approach um we've really thought of of knowledge as almost like a um, yeah, it's connected to experience and experiment in some ways, but it's really derived from this like fixed table of categories that that either we're born with that's innate uh, or that's like part of the structure of a language or something. And we're just fitting all of our experience into this, these categories. And I think the philosophers I'm more drawn to, whether it's James or Whitehead, John Dewey, uh, more pragmatic philosophers, um, they would say, no, we, we create new categories all the time and that categories are more, more like scaffolds um, and that we don't pour the cement. And if we do pour the cement and freeze our, you know, our categories into these rigid structures, we become incapable of learning. We become um, really maladapted to life <laughs> because um, we're going around thinking everything's a nail, you know, and all we have is this one tool, uh, the hammer. Um, and so this shift from knowledge to learning as the sort of um, uh, basic concept of how organisms navigate environments and understand themselves is really important, right? Because it's it's breaking us free of this idea of um, knowledge as, yeah, like some kind of... Um, already completed dictionary. Like we already have all the knowledge we need. We just need to look it up as new experience comes in. And that, that really doesn't allow for novelty of experience. It doesn't allow for learning. So it's an important shift that's happening across various disciplines. Well, it seems to me what's, in, what's important in, to me and what you said is that it's the nature of the goal then, because if your goal is too small or, um, if your goal is stasis, if your goal is to define a category and pour the concrete in and solidify it, then you're not, you're not, there's no potential for moving forward. So um, mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson always talks about that your goal has to be the highest good of which you can conceive because any other goal falls short of allowing for this flexibility and adaptivity and constant growth and learning. Um, but when we're talking about something like a single cell, you said 
you say learning or intelligence is the ability to accomplish the same goal by different means. James says intelligence. intelligence. Is that, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that means that there's a goal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, so understand life cell, without purposes. Yeah, so yeah. a single cell has to have a goal. And the nature of the goal is important. Otherwise, the cell will stop too soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the prevalence, the pervasiveness of teleology in the living world has for a long time been something, I mean, in the modern period, something of a scandal. Um, because if we do have a basically materialistic understanding of the universe, then we have to imagine organisms as um, machines. And I mean, the problem there, of course, is that even if we are a materialist biologist and thinking of organisms as just these uh, machines that were designed, quote unquote, by natural selection, um, we're, we're, tr- we're, we're, tr- we're trying to erase purpose, but we're still speaking in teleological terms. Like there's no escape from it. Machines are designed by, by engineers. And you can say, oh, nature did that just sort of on accident, um, just as a result of an organism trying to survive. But oh, there it is again, you just snuck in purpose. The organism's trying to survive. And, you know, um, Ernst Mayer, I think, came up with this term teleonomy, to like soften it a little bit. It was like, well, yeah, we can't but describe as scientists, we can't but describe life as purposive in its behaviors, but really it's just an artifact of of our purposes. And it's like, oh, so humans have purposes. So we must not just be organisms. What's going on there? So there are all these strange slips, right? And contradictions when you try to deny that purpose is part of nature. Purposes are operating in the natural world far beyond human beings. And it's, it's not been easy. And even, you know, I know, um, Mike Levin has a very sort of operationalizable experimentally grounded way of talking about purpose. He's like, well, if, if attributing goals to an organism, uh, helps you solve problems, uh, and helps you make predictions about their behavior, then you attribute purpose to them. It's why, why wouldn't you, um, but I think there's a deeper ontological issue here. You know, what is what is the nature of reality such that there should be human beings capable of scientifically investigating the world? Like we have this intelligence, we're directed by the aim at understanding. Where does that come from? And if if we're not going to root that in our biology and even potentially more deeply rooted then I think we run into a lot of paradoxes and performative self-contradictions and all sorts of problems. And so, you know, from my point of view, we really need to look again at this materialist paradigm, this materialist cosmology, and try to understand the universe in a more coherent way, such that purpose doesn't need to magically appear somewhere up the hierarchy of complexity, but is somehow driving the process of complexification from the beginning. Well, when when I think about the whole problem with materialism and reductionism, I'm reminded of a a video that I watched a while back with this um, professor of Berlin who is working on a new theory of quantum gravity. But one of the illustrations that he used was 
he started out with a little pixel on the screen, a little beige pixel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he said, <clears throat> is there any meaning in this pixel? Well, no, if you're just looking at the pixel, there's no meaning there. But then he surrounds the pixel with the whole rest of the picture. And it's this beautiful panorama of mountains and a lake. And, uh, you know, the moon is up in the sky and just and you immediately see that when you take something down to that one single component, you can erase all the meaning. But but in its context, it's it's freighted with meaning. Right. And um, I, that's when I don't understand how the the pure materialist reductionist can cannot see that that when you reduce everything down to its smallest component but even if you could you're still the one who's doing the reducing so there's still a relationship between you and this this reduced thing so for you there is still a meaning and that the the scientist is still interpreting that data and so they're continually putting meaning back into it, but it's maybe not the meaning that it originally had. You know, mm -hmm. um, you could look at that dot on the screen and you could find all sorts of narratives to explain it and come up with all sorts of meanings that are coming from you. But it wouldn't be the context of the meaning that it started out with because you've taken it all apart down to this one little speck. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you 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 swim in these waters all the time with other scientists and, and other philosophers. How do you navigate that? Hmm. Well, I try to be very diplomatic and respectful. <laughs> I, you know, I think science is a, maybe the most powerful method of inquiry that, that, that we have and reductionism as a methodology in some cases is mm -hmm. is valid um when you apply it to the universe as a whole and all of life and so forth then it it really oversteps its its purview but um i think knowing the proper context within which to use reductionism um you know say when you're a car mechanic and you're trying to figure out what's wrong uh with with the engine reductionism helps you isolate the problem it's great when you're dealing with uh art or, or life, uh, or uh, consciousness, it's totally inadequate. It's the wrong tool for the job. And one of the things that I think leads to some resistance among more reductionistically minded scientists is that other methods for investigating the universe don't afford us the same degree of certainty in our knowledge. Um, when you have a system that you can understand by way of reduction, it's made of, of parts that are clearly differentiated, that are replaceable. Um, it's typically in the context of a system where you can, you know, take a part out and replace it with a new part and, and, and the system won't die in the process um, because there's not this kind of interlinking, um, reciprocally co-producing process as you would find in a living organism, right? Where to the extent that you can isolate a part, that part is, is bound up in a network of other parts that produce one another. And there's a certain um, continuity in that process that must be man maintained. Like you, you, if, if you're going to do an organ transplant, like you need a whole complex set of machines to keep that person alive. 
for a very short amount of time when you take that, you know, you, you take the lungs out or your heart transplant. I mean, these are like very um, difficult uh, surgeries to do because you're dealing with something that can't be reduced to its parts. Um, and that, and that has a certain form of organization, which is, um, which is embedded in time and there's a certain rhythm and, and all of these things that, um, don't allow for the freeze frame to remove an isolated part. Right. And so I think we need to be careful where we try to apply reductionism. And I, I think there's a certain psychology, a, a psychological factor here, which is this, this desire for certainty. And it's, um, you know, part of the whole Cartesian paradigm. We want certainty. We want control. If we can, if we can reverse engineer something, we feel like we, we, we have mastery over it and we know exactly what it is and how it works, but there's so much in the universe that um, can't be reverse engineered and controlled in that way. We rather, I mean, this is part of what I love about Mike Levin's work is, you know, he's he's in his own way describing how in order for um, like the medical applications of, of his work uh, to take root, we need to take a different relationship to our bodies and the component, the cellular components of our bodies where we're entering into a relationship with them and, and speaking a language that's not a genetic language where we're trying to control exactly what they're going to do, but we're trying to coax them in certain directions and learn how to communicate with them at this higher level of abstraction, as it were, uh, so that in a collaborative way, we can get these cellular communities, um, we can lure them towards certain forms of behavior and organization, rather than thinking we just need to rewrite the code and push enter and, and compute the exact sequence of events that we wish we could control, right? So it's a very different, it's not just a different methodology, it's a different psychology, I think in terms of how human beings are relating to the natural world. Well, <clears throat> earlier in, in your discussion just there, you were using some terms that sounded very much like musical terms to me. Hmm. And uh, it made me think about this. Um, I'm going to go back to this Stephen Talbot thing here. And uh, he's talking again about... Uh, the chaffinch, but he's talking about music. And he says, think again of the chaffinch. The future-oriented aspect of the bird's wisdom has something in common with the way a phrase or theme in an integrally unified work of music gains its full meaning, only in the context of both the preceding and following sections of the composition. So basically, this moment now gains its full meaning only in the context of what has come before and what is going to come, right? The unity or wholeness of the piece comes to expression in and shapes the parts and their relations. We do not feel that a given motif is there merely in order to cause or make possible a later one. The possibility arises rather from the unity and character of the composition as a whole. I thought this was really um, the possibility arises rather from the unity and character of the composition as a whole. Yeah. So any given motif 
is what it is because of the character of the composition as a whole, not, not because, not, not just due to causal relationships, but because there is a whole before there is a part. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's certainly, I mean, when I've heard it said that Mozart would get a symphony entire in his mind at one instant, and then it would take him some time to break it down into all the parts and do the orchestration and write the music out. But, but the whole was there before he began the parts. And I found the same thing to be quite true of a painting that I can sort of see something in my mind's eye as a completed thing before I start the work of breaking it down into the steps that I need to take in order to realize, realize the thing that I've, that I've yeah. seen. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this makes me think of like a better analogy or metaphor for what an organism is instead of an organism is a machine with replaceable parts and so on that can, that can be understood just as a freeze frame. Instead, an organism is more like a song and the, the genetic code would be the musical score and the cells are like the orchestra, but the, the one difference with this analogy is that the in the case of a cellular orchestra, they're actually building their instruments as they go, <laughs> right? Um, but this this time developmental pattern that plays out over the course of an organism's developmental history is yeah, it's way more like like a song than it is, and the the genome like the musical score than a blueprint, right? To build the house, right? Which is this fixed form. Um, and I think there's so many helpful, I mean, when human beings engage in any art form, but music in particular, I think we really are tapping into the essence of life and, and perhaps the essence of the cosmos in some ways. And that's why music is so sublime, right? Because we feel like, uh, we're tuning to our deeper, maybe the deepest purpose that we have is to, is to, is to experience that kind of harmony that aesthetic harmony at that level i mean as a as a white heady and that is he says the teleology of the universe is the production of beauty there is no higher good if you want than the production of beauty at least in, in whitehead's view um so yeah i think talbot's onto something there well um my physicist friend glenn talks quite a bit about the universe being computational that computation is fundamental, but mm-hmm. he doesn't mean computation in the sense of like me- me- mechanistic computer computation driven by an algorithm, but computational in the sense of a song, a piece of music. Whereas you were saying, you know, you have, you have the music, you have all the different parts of the music, each part, has to be played by a person using an instrument and they're reading the parts, but then as they're interacting, they're interacting in a way that brings a greater fullness than any one of the parts could be by itself. But it's not only the fullness of the all the interacting parts, but each part has this um, flexibility and adaptability and it has its own tenor and its own resonance and in there you know 
a per one person playing the saxophone is going to sound very different from another person playing the saxophone. And so all of these parts working together to is, is a, it's a kind of a computation, but at the same time, it's a song. Mm-hmm. And so um, he calls computation, a symphony of choices over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. And I, I'm realizing that this idea of the genome or the genetic code as the musical score, it kind of works, but you, there's always room for improvisation, right? Mm-hmm. It's the score doesn't determine how exactly how the orchestra will play. And I think, you know, this, again, I think it's a metaphor when we say the university is computation, it's a metaphor. And if you look at the history of science, um, we're always reaching for um, metaphors like this based on the technology, which is prevalent in our time. Right. And so back in Descartes day, there were these um, automata, these, these sort of, um, you know, kind of like a, um, the gear works in a clock, you know, these were the sorts of machines they had. And so they imagined, okay, nature must be like this. And then in the 19th century, we had the steam engine and and that's when thermodynamics developed and it's like, okay, the universe much must be some kind of giant thermodynamic system. And in the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, the microchip and the digital computer is everywhere. And so of course that becomes the metaphor we reach for. And they all, they all capture something. Um, I think my only caution here would be not to collapse the ontology with the the or the nature of the universe um into any one of these metaphors and to recognize that there's um uh, there's lots of wiggle room there's lots of ways in which the universe is nothing like a computer though we can define computation more broadly in this way which i like but yeah well so maybe not so much like a, a composition as like jazz Mm-hmm. because right. jazz has all that flexibility in it but what i'm thinking of when i think of that is that the universe is a work of art yep and um when i'm painting the substrate that i'm using to paint on makes all the difference in how i paint mm-hmm. and there are certain substrates especially if you're working in watercolor there are certain substrates that don't absorb the watercolor but the watercolor just moves on top of it and so when you're painting on that substrate, you, it's almost like a work of jazz because you have to, there's so many moving parts at all, all at one time. The color is moving, um, the shapes are moving on the paper. And in, in your mind, you're also working with all the principles that are governing this work of art, the, the, um, the desire for unity and harmony and the need for contrast and dominance and repetition and variation and gradation and balance. And all that is going on as you're working with all this to bring about this unified whole at the end. Mm-hmm. And it very, it is very much like a piece of jazz because the, the materials themselves are acting and interacting in a way that's completely, um, unpredictable to you as the artist and yet you can allow that to happen and still find a way so that the end is more constant than the means yeah it's creativity within constraints yeah exactly yeah we can't have just pure pure creativity would be chaos we need these rules um 
to well, without constraints nothing can happen yeah if there's it's like gas if you remove the container of the gas it just floats out into nothingness right so that the, the container the constraints the limitations are necessary for anything to happen mm-hmm. any sort of growth um yeah I, I think that answers part of the reason for suffering in the universe you know mm. yeah. evolution requires it i mean learning can be painful especially when it's a very novel task yeah i'm trying to learn german right now Oh my goodness. I feel so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) The fool comes Uh, before the savior. (laughs) You have to be a fool before you can master something. Absolutely. But somehow, you know, you, if you can push through, if you can keep the goal in mind and you, you push through the pain (laughs) and the suffering, I mean, you know, learning German, it's, it's kind of fun too, but um, I could think of a, a more um, severe example. I mean, you know, when you're training for for an athletic competition, I mean, if you're trying to run a marathon and like you have to get yourself into that um, really refined cardiovascular shape, um, the road to that is, yeah, it's really painful. Um, but once you're there, uh, it's all worth it. Right. And, you know, this is like, again, I'll go back to Whitehead. He talks about the dream of youth and the harvest of tragedy in the sense that whether we're talking about human life or just the the universe's uh, unfolding, that, you know, pain and suffering and loss, destruction is part of the evolutionary process. But if, if in the end we've been able to harvest some beauty from that process, then the really the highest form of beauty we can achieve is tragedy in the in the Greek dramatic sense. And that there's deep meaning in tragedy. Where I mean in the in for the Greeks, it was like the tragic dramas were were displaying this this tension and the kind of complex unity of freedom and necessity that that you don't really get. Uh, a genuine expression of freedom that hasn't been tempered by failure and that hasn't been constrained uh, by, by various um, the necessities of nature, right? And that we need this tension in order to actually experience deep beauty that's not just a cheap kind of pretty thrill, but that is actually meaningful. So yeah, suffering is... Um, it's it's a royal road, as someone said. <laughs> Forget who. Oh. Well, I mean, we certainly have an example of that. Um, the Via Dolorosa. <clears throat> mm. um, so the unity or wholeness of the piece comes to expression in and shapes the parts and their relations. Yeah, you said it very clearly earlier. The whole precedes the parts when we're talking about anything alive. The whole precedes the parts. The whole constrains the parts, right? And that the parts don't exist outside the context of the whole. It's, I mean, the, you know, um, DNA is a great 
example of this where the old paradigm would say, well, that's what's programming the whole organism, like the DNA, the genomes in charge. But if you take the DNA out of the context of a living cell, it degrades very quickly. It falls apart, right? The cell is maintaining the, the genome, correcting errors, right? You There's this old central dogma, as it's called, that is this linear process that you go from DNA to RNA to proteins. But the problem with that is, is you need the ribosome, which is a complex sort of protein device in mm-hmm. order to make that transcription and translation process work, right? So it's right. way more, it's a circle. It's not a line. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, so you were talking about the whole and I, wh- who was it? Was it Bergson that said, there, there is no outside. There's only inside. It was no, it wasn't Bergson. I, I can't remember, but, but you have the inside and then you have the outside of everything, and it's nested all the way out. Mm-hmm. So then you have this outside or the whole that's affecting everything else, and that sounds very much like your book on cosmology, mm. right? Whitehead's cosmology. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about? your book? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, what you're describing is this, this nesting process. Whitehead uses this wonderful, wonderful word sheltering to describe the way that order emerges in the history of the universe. And so he'll describe this nested sequence of, of different um, forms of order, beginning with um, what he calls uh, the, the geometrical order that, that defines, you know, straight lines, which is a very abstract kind of order, but he thinks that must be kind of out there in order for the next layer of order, uh, which he calls like the electromagnetic form of order to even be describable. Like we need math and then we can talk about the physics that that math describes. Um, and then within the electromagnetic order, there's this, um, there's the atomic uh, elements, right, which laid down these kind of base notes that all the rest of the creativity in the history of the universe has to be um, has to be developed in terms of or on top of, um, and so and then you get you know stars and galaxies and then you know you know the rest of the story and there are these so these layers of order that shelter that provide these background rhythms if you want for the intensification of self-organization to occur on a planet that's the right distance from a star with the right chemicals. Um, and we think, you know, we, 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 we tend to think of the emergence of life as this isolated event that happened by chance because lightning struck the shallow ocean at this time. Or, you know, if we take Bruce Damer and, and David Deemer's origin of life hypothesis, it was these, these shallow freshwater um, geyser fed ponds but we, we tend to think of it as this, this miraculous event, which took place in this little local, um, um, you know, contained um, place. But, but actually the whole history of the universe and all these layers of order and, and rhythm, which have been laid down billions of years in the past, they're all participating in creating the context, kind of the pressure that pushed life into existence or, or lured life into existence, you could say. Um, and so, you know, Whitehead's cosmology really does invite us to connect what have become isolated disciplines. Like physicists typically don't think 
that they should care what the biologists are doing when they're describing life, because from the physicist's point of view, life is a kind of peripheral accident right out there on the edge on, on maybe a few planets. But um, Whitehead's cosmology invites us to look again and say, well, actually biology can tell us a lot about the nature of the physical world, because in order to understand how life could emerge in a non-miraculous scientific way, we actually need to look more deeply at the principles of physics and make sure that they allow, not only that they allow for life, but that they, um, they allow for what we, what we seem to know about life's history on the earth, that as soon as the planet cooled off enough and, and water could condense on the surface, it's like almost instantaneously in geological time, life appears, right? Life was dying to come to life. I like to say, uh, and so why did it happen so quickly? It wasn't it wasn't an improbable accident if it happened so quickly. I mean, until we find life on another planet, maybe I, I can't be as um, definite in that claim, but it just seems that on this planet, as soon as the conditions were right, life appears. And so that says something about the nature of physics and chemistry. And I think physicists should pay more attention to what biologists are saying. And what psychologists and, and and sociologists and anthropologists are saying, like we want to understand the nature of the universe in this integral or holistic way, such that human beings are not some freak accident where like, we, how could intelligent beings like us ever occur in a universe that's just a bunch of atoms banging up against each other? Well, if humans are here, that means it's not just a bunch of atoms banging up against each other. There's some deeper arc or aim the evolutionary process. And that's what I love about Whitehead's cosmology. He refuses to allow the scientific disciplines to remain cloistered and siloed. Um, he wants scientists to talk to each other and to understand how all these pieces fit together. The thing that you're describing sounds very much like um, one of the ways I like to describe the principle of dominance is that in art, you have to have dominance in order to have unity because if you if everything is half half then there's no unity of the painting at all and it all just becomes like wallpaper or something or if everything is made up of equal parts there's no unity just like looking at wallpaper with a with a with a repeat um so dominance provides a unity that gives a, a harmony to the painting but dominance is not the kind of dominance that's talked about in the world today, where people are always talking about the patriarchy and the dominant cultures and all that kind of thing. But it's the dominance of basically a kind of uh, support or sheltering, as you said, mm -hmm. that the dominance provides a little jewel case for the focal point. So if, for example, I have a painting that's dominantly cool in, in color tone, like maybe in the blue rain, blues and greens, my focal point is probably going to have some little spark of red or orange in it. And there's, or if my painting is dominantly dark, my focal point is going to be light. So the, the very minority thing is the focal point in the painting and the dominance is what is there to support it or to give you a kind of a journey around the canvas until you come to the focal point. 
So when you talked about this whole sheltering thing of physics and chemistry coming to the place where biology arrives, to me, that whole picture of the cosmos is producing this jewel case so that the focal point of Mm -hmm. humanity can be represented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's dominance is such a uh, charged word, but I think if we bring it back to its sort of Latin, Latin roots, it's it, it like domicile, right? It's like a home, it's a shelter. Oh, I I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I think about this a lot in the context of Old Testament translation and interpretation where, you know, there's this line in Genesis about humans being given dominion and theologians and biblical scholars, especially in the context of like ecology and the environmental crisis are trying to, who, who are also Christians are trying to figure out how to interpret this term and what is the proper human role if we, if we want to inherit the Bible. But some eco theologians, let's say, would emphasize that you know dominion really refers to the fact that we should take care of our home, um, and and you know when we're thinking of the the the, the notion of dominance in the context of um, of art and 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 the composition of a painting and so on, I think I'm I'm reminded of you know Whitehead's definition of beauty and what more intense beauty would require, and and for him. Um, beauty is intensified when you when you're able to bring um, more diversity at the level of the individual components of a painting into harmony, right? So mm-hmm. diversity in harmony is the measure of beauty, and it's it's about contrast. Um, it's about achieving this uh, this avoiding conflict and achieving contrast as as a, a way of overcoming what might otherwise feel like a clash. Um, and if we think about it in sociological terms to, to move out of the artistic register, um, we, you know, Whitehead would say we don't want to have a society that is ordered as a result of coercive force. We want a society that's ordered as a result of, of persuasion, right? Where um, to the extent that there is a sort of unified more or less unified ethos. It's it's an ethos that every individual feels compelled to participate in and contribute to because of its intrinsic goodness and beauty and truth, right? Rather than it being imposed by the powers that be, right? And, you know, so the whole question becomes how do we have a society with the right balance of order and chaos uh, where the telos is something that everyone assents to and strives to achieve as best they can, right? It sounds so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's nice on paper. How do we do it though? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, just the other day I ran into a young man. So he was pointed out to me by one of my viewers and um, I haven't talked to him yet, so I don't know what his background is, but he has a dream. And uh, his dream has two parts. One of the parts is that he wants to be a part of um, developing within existing cities, village squares with all of, with all that comes with that, you know, to have a church in the village square, 
a gathering place in the village square where people can uh, come together for a common purpose and and uh, have community and um, and then he has one other concept which just slipped my mind. Um, oh, um, to bring back the beauty of art and architecture into our culture. And he has a lot of ideas about how to do that. He wants to develop galleries in cities that um, combine art and architecture and music. And so he's actively working on this. He's gathering people around to make this happen. And he also has a YouTube channel and I'm going to have a conversation with him pretty soon, but um, it's exciting to see young people take up this mantle of trying to bring this back into our culture. And, uh, but you were talking about, you said that Whitehead has this idea that the measure of beauty is um, bringing more diversity into harmony, which is totally the picture that I have of, of how art should be made. And I wondered what Whitehead should I read to get his viewpoint on this aspect of art? Because there's so much Whitehead. <laughs> this is Adventures of Ideas. It's um, published in 1933. And the, is it the fourth part or the third part of this book? Um, fourth part. There are chapters on truth, beauty, truth and beauty, adventure and peace. And the chapter on beauty in particular would be one I would point you to, but also his whole treatment in these several chapters about the the difference between truth and beauty, but also the ways that they depend on one another. Um, and, you know, he's a romantic at heart. And so, you know, John Keats once said, truth is beauty and beauty truth, um, something along those lines. And so there's this tendency among the romantics to kind of equate the two. And Whitehead's also a logician and a scientist. So he's like, well, not so fast. Like there's certain things about truth that we need to differentiate. But at the end of the day for Whitehead, beauty is an attempt to, to display or to um, bring to the surface so that it can appear to us some deeper truth that would otherwise have remained hidden, right? And so there are some truths that can't be prosaically um, explicated. There are some truths that require art, that require some aesthetic um, expression in order to be conveyed, right? And so I would I would point you in that direction. It's it's some of the most beautiful writing um, that you'll see in in Whitehead, and, and it. These these last chapters of Adventures of Ideas really make it clear that when he's when he's writing in this super dry technical logical way as he does in other books, um, it's not because he doesn't have the poetic capacity. It's because he's he's doing something else. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, uh -huh. But uh, but yeah, I'd I'd love to hear your response to these chapters if you and when you get to it. I definitely am going to go after it because I've had this sort of intuition that I need to read Whitehead, but it's so overwhelming when I look at his over. <laughs> just, I, yeah. I just can't get there. I mean, I have I have a half a dozen books that I'm working on already. Have you seen this book? This is a fascinating, fascinating book. Um, 
Mystery of Physical Life, E.L. Grant Watson. No, but I see the preface by Barfield. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to write that one down. He talks quite a bit about Whitehead in here. Oh. But um, he also just brings up, and of course, this book was written in, uh, it's an old book, first published in 1943, I think. Hmm. So there's obviously a lot of, modern biology that he didn't have yet but he brings up such good questions about what they should be looking at in biology and uh, and he talks a lot about participation and perception and the creative world and adaptation and uh, it's a fascinating book very well done I can't remember where I ran into it it was probably I might have been reading something of Barfields or something and it was mentioned hmm. as something that he had written a preface for or something I can't quite remember the author's name one more time E.L. Grant Watson E.L. Grant Watson great yeah I it took me a while to find the book but I, I mean I did finally find one on Amazon um, I'm going to track that down yeah I really like it that and Talbot's Talbot Talbot's stuff is uh, free, all mm-hmm. free. He put it all online so that all his books would be free and you can look through them. And I'll, yeah. I'll put that in the description section. He has a great book on the history of computers that I started and need to finish. Uh, it's very interesting. Oh, I just I just saw that today in the list of his stuff that he had some work that was outside of biology. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. No, he goes back to the ancient Egyptians and shows this, the development of very simple technologies, which he argues are forms of computation and then ramps up into the 20th century. Um, and I think it's very important to recognize that what makes the human organism unique is the ways in which biologically we remain so um, unspecialized. Like, you know, we... We have hands that can do so many things rather than hooves or claws. Um, and we have, you know, mouths that that didn't become beaks or have huge teeth. And so we can speak and and we're we're so malleable and and we were we're born so helpless. We're we're neotenous is the word for this. And neoteny is the way that um as you see in mammals and primates, especially and then in the homo genus in particular we we stay youthful longer and so we're in a more plastic state capable of learning new skills we don't come into the world with instincts already sort of hardwired and 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 cemented and our relationship to technology is our way of you know doing all the things that more specialized animals can do because we can make tools to do all sorts of things without ourselves becoming locked in to any of those behaviors. But the danger now is because we're so inundated by screens, for example, um, we're allowing this, we're building a technological cage around ourselves in so many ways and losing some of this plasticity. Wow. That's so fascinating. I've often thought about why is it that we don't have instincts or, you know, at least not instincts developed to the extent of, of so many other animals but not having instincts gives us so much more freedom to adapt. 
That's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah, that's yeah. We're, I'm we're going born... to look that one up for sure. Yeah, his yeah, uh... neoteny. Yeah, we're born still doughy, you know, only partially <laughs> baked. <laughs> A little too doughy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm wearing down. Whatever okay. this is I have is really starting to get to me right now. So yeah. this has been so great, Matt. Thank you so much for this. And um, I will- It's always a blast, put, Karen. I will put in the description section, Whitehead's book and Talbot's work and uh, this thing of Talbot's on computers and biology and E.L. Grant Watson and the two video clips that we watched and- um, I will look forward to learning more from you every day in Twitter. Well, thanks, Karen. And thanks for your, your video series. I've learned a lot from you and your guests. So keep it up. Thank you. Get, and, and get well first. <laughs> thanks. Good luck on your, your class in cosmology. How many students do you have this semester? Uh, two sections of that course with 14 students each. So about 28 students. Yeah. And what's the name of the class again? It's Whitehead's Adventure in Cosmology. So, so if somebody wants to take that course, they have to matriculate at the uh, California. You could audit. You could study. also audit. Yeah. You can audit online or you audit. Yeah. It's an online course. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. So is there a cost auditing if somebody wants to audit it? There is. It's it's about a third of the cost of tuition. Um, it's more expensive than I would like, unfortunately, but um I will say I'll drop a little plug here for a project I'm working on um, related to Whitehead for those who don't want to matric matric matriculate and go to grad school um, and pay tuition. This book is his last modes of thought. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm working with the startup and I'll have more details to share about this to develop an AI uh, tutorial on this book. I'm training uh, chat GPT four is the base LLM and I'm training it on Whitehead's thought, um, coming up with tutorial questions to guide the reader. We're recording lectures, um, video lectures, which will be embedded in the, it'll be an ebook. And so it'll be a way for people to take a course with, with me in a way, because I really am spending a lot of time teaching this chat bot, giving it layers of context on top of the normal chat GPT-4 um, training material so that it understands Whitehead. It knows how to speak the Whitehead language. It has all my secondary publications on Whitehead and all of Whitehead's other books. And so my hope is that this will be a way for many, many more people than I could ever directly supervise to take a course with me in a way on Whitehead. So that should be um, at least a, uh, a prototype coming in a few months and by next year should be available for folks. That's going to be absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've, I've found really interesting working with even just chat GPT. If I start by asking it a question about some book I've read, the first go round will be very surface and very minimal. And it'll sound like some sort of sophomore idea, you know, but then the more questions that I ask, it seems to push itself deeper and deeper and deeper until after about question number five, it actually can come up with a very coherent analysis, even of a book as complicated as DC Schindler's Love and the Postmodern Predicament. Hmm. You know, the first time around, it just takes the title and says something 
flip about the title. But then when you keep asking it questions, well, what about this idea related to such and such? And then it'll just push deeper and deeper. And that at a certain point, you kind of feel like, yeah, it actually did read the book, you know, <laughs> and maybe it is just, you know, one word predicting the next word. I don't know. But but I do feel like if you can train one of those things like you're doing, you can really get some interesting stuff. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's the real power of these is is with a lot of high touch human interaction. Mm -hmm. For more slightly more specific tasks, I mean, the general intelligence thing is a little bit down the road, I think. But when we're able to train it to do very specific tasks, um, it's quite impressive. So, well, it's exciting to me that there are people of your caliber training these things because whatever interactions we have with them, if there ever is anything that's going to turn into AGI down the road, we want them to have heart. <laughs> I would want them to be Whiteheadian for sure. Yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. I, I've really appreciated you being here. And uh, yeah, my pleasure, Karen. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, look forward to the next time. Okay. Bye-bye.